Hello, and welcome back to the Tim Masso Podcast. We've had a little bit of a gap, but we are back on track. Some big interviews coming up. We're going to be talking this fall to Pierre Jacques, CEO of Dibitoon. We're also going to be speaking with past and present CEOs of HYT, an independent brand that is coming back from bankruptcy. We're going to have an exclusive feature on that here. And we're also going to be talking to Mauro Egermini of Schwarzetien about its plans for the future, its in-house capabilities, and among other things, the future of the collaboration with Carrie Voudelainen. So that's all going to be on the Tim Masso podcast. We're also going to be hosting a couple of good friends, including the return of Drew Koblitz, race car driver, car collector and watch aficionado so he's going to be on the show soon look for all of that on the tim masso podcast in the near future for now i think it's time to start talking about the gphg now the gphg of course since 2001 is sort of the oscars of watchmaking november 4th we're going to see the awards given Théâtre du Le Mans in Geneva, and it's going to be one of the more interesting recent GPHGs. I'm not going to lie, all years are not created equal, and some of them are duds. We're going to talk about some of the categories that will be awarded, as well as my personal preferences. We'll also do a quick review of last year's GPHG and what kind of watches were winning the categories, and also how the categories are defined. So, of course, the GPHG since 2001, selecting a series of watches in various classifications, it is effectively an academy, just like the Academy Awards in the world of cinema, and these people tend to be chosen from the nomenclatura of the industry. Dealers, authors, engineers, watchmakers, a couple of pundits, and even bloggers from time to time. And just to be clear, I've never been part of the jury, so I'm impartial here. I'm just going to comment on the GPHG choices rather than the folks who make them. And we may as well start with a quick review of some of the categories. So this year, the nominated watches are in the categories Ladies, Ladies Complication, Men's, Men's Complication, Iconic, Tourbillon, Calendar and Astronomy, Mechanical Exception, Chronograph Divers, Jewelry, Artistic Crafts, Petite Aegis, and Challenge. It should be noted that the overall winner at the competition, the Aegis d'Or, or the Needle of Gold, as it translates in, in English, is chosen from all of the categories combined. So it's not a specific category within the judging. It's actually the best watch chosen overall from all of the competing categories. And you might ask, first and foremost, because this is a pretty prominent affair, and there seem to be some major absences. For example, where's Rolex? Where's Patek Philippe? There are a lot of prominent brands that feel like they should be in the GPHG. Well, you must submit your watches to a pre-selection in order to be considered for the nominations. So if you're wondering why Rolex and Patek Philippe aren't there, the answer is quite simple. They don't submit watches for judging. And that's a little bit of a surprise, at least on the Rolex side, because Tudor Watch, which is Rolex's, I, I guess, cousin or baby brother, depending on how you want to view it, but Tudor does compete at the GPHG. And Geneva is kind of the stomping ground for Patek and Rolex, so maybe it's a little bit of a surprise that they're not present. But then again, when you're Rolex, you have nothing to gain and everything to lose by competing against watches whose brand equity, name recognition, and pop culture value can't compete with yours any day of the week. So in a way, and it's kind of unfortunate, Rolex probably sees itself 
as above the GPHG. Now, it should also be mentioned that historically, Patek Philippe has competed. And in fact, if you go back to the early days of the GPHG, there were times when Patek Philippe competed and Patek Philippe won. So Patek's absence from the GPHG is not an all-time truth. It's a recent development as the Aiguidor was won by the 5102 Sky Moon back in 2002. And let me rack my memory here, but I think it might have actually won in 2003 as well. Uh, Patek probably doubled up its Aiguidor wins, its overall wins, with the 5101 10-day tourbillon chronometer. So, like I said, Patek in the past was a contender, but like Rolex, Patek probably realizes that in the year 2021, it has more to lose than to gain by participating in the GPHG. So let's talk about some of last year's winners. The Aiguidor in 2020 was the Piaget Altiplano Ultimate Concept. Now, this is a watch that was teased in 2019 as a prototype, the world's thinnest mechanical watch, two millimeters thick with the base plate of the movement and the case back of the watch one and the same. It replaced a lot of the pivot jewels with flat ball bearings, and it was a remarkable thing made mostly of a cobalt alloy, which was unique to the watch in as much as very, very few cases. This watch, the original Royal Oak concept, only a handful of very expensive watches have been made out of cobalt, precisely because it is so difficult to machine and expensive to make. So the Altiplano Ultimate Concept has an ultimate price tag attached, 410,000 Swiss francs to get a two millimeter thick, 41 millimeter diameter, time only manual wind watch. I thought it was an appropriate selection, and it would have been my choice if I were part of the jury. Uh, but it was probably the simplest watch in the judging, and at the same time, it was far and away the most exceptional. Remember, it did not compete for Aiguidor. It competed in a category, and it won the Aiguidor as the choice of the best overall. Uh, going back and taking a look at some of the other Categories of interest in uh, 2020, the Kari Voudelainen Vontweet SC, the center second version of the 28, won the men's watch prize. Grubel Forsey's Handmade One won a controversial men's complication watch prize. The Handmade One, you have to understand, is a tourbillon. And it's just a tourbillon. It's three hands and a tourbillon. And there are many in the watch industry of... August standing who do not believe a tourbillon is a complication, just as they don't believe an overcoil hairspring is a complication, or a fusée and chain, or a remontoire de galette. A lot of folks see those as refinements, and it's important to note that historically, the definition of a grand complication pocket watch or wristwatch includes at least a chronograph, a perpetual calendar, and a minute repeater. A tourbillon is not part of the definition, and in fact, substituting a chronograph, a perpetual calendar, or a minute repeater for a tourbillon would actually remove the grand complication status from a grand complication watch. So for Grubel Forsey's handmade one, tourbillon, to win the complication watch prize was contentious. I should also mention, if you're not familiar with the handmade one, it's Grubel Forsey creating a watch the way a watch would have been made in the 18th and 19th century. That is, if Grubel Forsey can use mechanical techniques like CNC and electrospark erosion to make 100 watches a year, take all that away 
and it can only make two to three watches a year, and that's what the handmade one is. So a contentious complication prize winner, but a wonderful watch in its own right. Now, the iconic watch prize, which goes to the most historically distinctive watch, a watch that has continuity of design over time, a little bit of con... A little bit of controversy there, too, because it went to the Bulgari Aluminum Chronograph. If you remember the Bulgari Aluminum of 1998, back in the original variant, it was quartz-powered. It later became part of the Diagono line of sports watches. But it was a watch that was long out of production, and it was revived by Bulgari. Now it was a mechanical watch for 2020. The chronometry prize went to the chronometry Fernand Bertou FB2 RE2, which was not controversial. That watch was considered with a fusée and a remontoire to be one of the best watches of the year and a contender for the Aiguidor. The calendar and astronomy watch prize went to a new open-worked version of the overseas perpetual calendar, the ultra-thin skeleton. Again, a little bit contentious because it's a new version of a watch that's been out for a couple of years now. Mechanical exception was the Beauvais 1822 Recital 26 Brainstorm Chapter 2. A mouthful, but again, Beauvais wins are generally non-controversial because the watches are spectacular. The chronograph prize went to the H. Moser and C. Streamliner Flyback. The Petite Egi, which goes to a price-limited watch, went to the Breitling Super Ocean Heritage 57 Limited Edition 2, the rainbow dial version that was sold as a COVID benefit watch. And just to be clear, the Petite Egi is a prize for a watch with a retail price between 3,500 and 10,000 Swiss francs, and smart watches are admissible. But it was the Super Ocean Heritage 57 Limited Edition 2 COVID Relief that won the Petite Egi. Now, the challenge watch is for a watch priced under 3,500 Swiss francs, and in 2020, that went to the Tudor Black Bay 58 Navy Blue. Very controversial in as much as that watch was not well-received by Tudor fans who thought it just a little too derivative. And then the Horological Revelation Prize, which is important to me because I think it's really a catch-all category for the coolest watch of the year, that went to the Peterman Badat Deadbeat Second. And guys, if you haven't seen the Peterman Badat watches, check them out. Uh, uh, Gail Peterman and Florian Badat are making watches worthy of Philippe Dufour, and right now the pricing and the wait lists are very reasonable get in before they force you to get out. I cannot say they will be able to satisfy demand indefinitely into the future, but check out Florian Badat and Gail Peterman and the watches they are making. Now, let's talk about the nominated watches for this year. Our categories, and there are a few that have been cut this year, but we've got ladies, ladies complication, men's, men's complication, iconic, tourbillon, calendar and astronomy, mechanical exception, chronograph, divers, jewelry, artistic crafts, petite aiguille, and challenge. So let's just focus on some of the categories that I think you guys are going to dig the most, and maybe we'll catch some of the others. We'll also review a few of the rules as we jump from category to category. So first, let's talk about the men's watch category. Uh, the men's is for men's watches comprising the following indications only. Hours, minutes, seconds, simple date, which is the day of the month, power reserve, classic moon phases, and potentially adorned with a maximum five carat of gem setting. In other words, this is not supposed to be a jewelry watch, and it's not supposed to be a complicated watch. This year, in the men's category, we have the Grand Seiko 
High beat, 36,000 vibration per hour, 80 hours with caliber 9S A5. This is a spectacular watch. So you've seen the new caliber 9S A5. This is the model SLGH005, 40 millimeters, 100 meters water resistant, a dial that is both stamped in a pressed and lacquered to create something approaching the look of the snowflake dial that Grand Seiko has made famous. Uh, the idea is to evoke the distinctive natural environment of northern Japan, where almost all Grand Seiko watchmaking is based. Now, for 2020, Grand Seiko upgraded the 9S. It's now accurate to minus three plus five seconds a day, which was always the case with the high beats, but it now has an 80-hour power reserve, a direct and indirect impulse escapement that's unique to Grand Seiko, and it has a full balance bridge and a free-sprung balance with an overcoil hairspring. There are a lot of revisions in this movement that now elevate it to the realm of true high horology. And again, at 40 millimeters, this is a watch that you can easily wear, uh, 10,500 Swiss francs, so it's not cheap by Grand Seiko standards. They're stepping up into the upper echelons of the market with a hand-finished a handmade movement, and a hand-finished case. And frankly, I think the price is appropriate. That is my choice in the men's category. Also eligible in the men's category, we have the H. Moser & C. Swiss Alp Watch Final Upgrade, the Hermes Osh Zero or Wheat, which is the H08. It's a cool watch. It looks distinctive in graphene. I'm not sure there's enough innovation here to justify elbowing past the Grand Seiko. And remember, the Moser is a new version of a watch that's been in production since 2016. Yes, it's the last version. No, I don't necessarily think it's the best contender. And the Louis Herard, Le Semain Louis Herard with Alain Silberstein, cool watch. But I've inspected these watches up close. And while the trilogy is fun, I don't think they're terribly innovative. We've seen Silberstein's take on other brands' watches now from everywhere from MBNF to Louis Erard to Romain Jerome. So he's got a theme and he sticks to that theme. And I don't think there's enough innovation here like there is with the Grand Seiko to justify a Louis Erard win. MBNF with their LM101 stainless steel is attractive, but the 101's been around for a while. Piaget now has a polo skeleton. And again, I just don't see enough innovation. Men's complication. The rules for the Men's Complication Prize. Men's watches that are remarkable in terms of their mechanical creativity and complexity, these watches may feature all kinds of classic and or innovative complications and indications and do not fit the definition of the men's and mechanical exception categories. So the nominated watches are the Audemars Royal Oak Self-Winding Flying Tourbillon Chronograph, Breitling's Premier B15 Duograph, Retropont, the Bulgari Octo Roma World Timer, the Chanel Monsieur de Chanel Super Legera, the Chopard LUC Quattro Sprint 25, and the MBNF LMX Titanium. Now, again, with the LMX, we have a watch that's been around for a while. With the Chanel Monsieur de Chanel, making the watch larger and sportier does not disguise the fact that this watch has now been around for five years, and while I like it, I don't think a variant should win a prize in a category where there are some originals. The Bulgari Octo Roma World Timer seems like a rare miss for Bulgari in, in recent years, as it seems fairly anodyne. It's not an Octo Finissimo, and it seems... Well, distinctively octo, but not quite as show-stealing as the ultra-thins. It doesn't pop. Think of the 
Laureato Absolute from 2019, and you get the general idea. It's lacking something. I like the Breitling Premier, but I think the best Premier is the 40mm steel manual wand pistachio no-date. I don't actually think this Duograph Retropont is the best Premier, so it can't be the best watch in this category. Now, where I do find a great deal of interest is in the Audemars Piguet, which is an absolute show stealer. Uh, the Royal Oak Offshore self-winding flying tourbillon chronograph, 100 meters water resistant titanium, 43 millimeters, a watch that costs well over a quarter million dollars. It's being made in a 100-piece series, which seems like kind of a lot for this sort of thing. But the quality of what you get in the visually spectacular dial with the flying tourbillon at center flanked by the chronograph, all of this endears it to me, and it's an automatic winder, which means while it is a bombastic thing, it's practical for everyday use. So for me, it comes down to either that or the new Chopard LUC Quattro Spirit 25, which celebrates 25 years of Chopard. This is a watch that is 40 millimeters in diameter with a Grand Faux enamel dial. It features a jump hour and a spectacular movement. 192 hour power reserve, manual wind, Geneva a hallmark and all of this for 45,000 US dollars roughly 44,700 Swiss francs a 100 piece limited series to me based on the 198 in-house caliber also known as the Quattro this is a watch that's beautiful from any angle four mainspring barrels immaculate decoration a jump hour which I happen to find a very endearing and dynamic complication this would be my choice to win the men's complication category as much as I like the AP I'd prefer to wear the show part. Okay, iconic. This is where you're gonna find a lot of well-traveled designs. Innovation is rarely the key to winning this category, as we find watches whose standout feature is often their lack of change from year to year. So, what makes an iconic watch according to the rules? Well, watches from an emblematic collection that has been exercising a lasting influence on watchmaking history and the watch market for more than 20 years. That is a pretty catch-all category for just about every long-lasting design. Heck, an Omega Diver Seamaster 300 meter could be in this category. So, What's nominated? Well, there is the new Audemars Piguet Royal Oak Jumbo Extra Thin. Remember the non-tapisserie gradient green dial watch? Remember that one? That's the one we're talking about. Platinum gradient green sunburst metallic dial, 39 millimeters with the jumbo movement. It's about a $100,000 watch at 97,100 Swiss francs. This is the send-off to the 15202, which is celebrating its last year this year. There's also the Grand Seiko recreation of the first Grand Seiko, the SBGW 258, 38 millimeters, so it's a bit bigger than the 1960 original, but it's very traditional with Dauphine hands, yellow gold, no date, and the dia shock notation, the shock protection notation on the dial side. At $30,000, this is a no date, no joke, no holds barred luxury watch from Grand Seiko. That said, as much as I like it, it's a lot of money for a three-hand watch that is handsome but not stunning. There's the IWC Big Pilots Watch 43, a no-date big pilot that is both an automatic and 100 meters water resistant with a bracelet available. 
the water resistance and the bracelet, two features we have not seen on a Big Pilot. At 43 millimeters, it looks like they're considering this to be an extension of the Big Pilot's watch line, which if you remember the count back doesn't quite work because that watch came out in 2002. This is supposed to be a 20 year design. The original 5,000 2 came out in 2002, so technically this is a 19-year-old design. They must be considering the Big Pilot's Watch 43 to be a continuation of the World War II Luftwaffe B-Ur that was actually made by IWC. So I don't see a lot of innovation there, unfortunately, though it has changed more than the other two, so I'm throwing it in with a shot. There's the Vacheron Constantin American 1921, which is a 100th anniversary tribute to possibly Vacheron's most recognizable design. It's the midsize, too, at 36.5 millimeters square. It's made of white gold. It is from the Historique collection. It is very handsome. And while there's not a whole lot of innovation here, you don't have to innovate in this category. And for 30,700 Swiss francs, this is almost a reasonably priced high horology watch, given that almost every one of these will be sold out, and that's rare for a contemporary Vacheron. Zenith has the Chronomaster Revival A386, and this now represents the heart and soul of Zenith. I think the Dayfies have become so extreme that they represent more of a Tag Heuer or Hublot take on what a Zenith should be. With this watch, 38 millimeters in diameter, literally laser scanned from the A386 in the Zenith factory collection, the factory museum, this is close to the Zenith that I would buy if I were in the market. It's got caliber 400, 50 hour power reserve, 10 beats per second, column wheel chronograph, this is the El Primero you imagine, and a strong contender. If it weren't for the Tudor Black Bay 58-925, the taupe dial sterling silver Black Bay is the coolest thing to happen to the Black Bay since the Black Bay 58, maybe even since the Black Bay came out in 2012. The color, the character, the material, the boldness of doing something so different in the modern luxury watch market means this Tudor Black Bay 58-925 is my choice to win the iconic category. And let's say my fallback is going to be the gradient dial AP because I love me some green dials. Torbion. What won the Torbion competition last year? Let's take a look and see. This might be a new competition. And it actually is a new competition for this year probably because of the controversy engendered by the Grubel Forcey Handmade One winning a complication watch prize with only a tourbillon regulator. So here's what a tourbillon is according to the rules. Men's mechanical watches comprising at least one tourbillon, additional indications and or complications are admissible. Now, let's talk about the nominated watches because this is a category of heavy hitters. There's the Artia Purity Tourbillon. If you're familiar with Yvan Arpa's watches, he is mostly an artist in the watchmaking sense, though he is an engineer by training. He is famous for watches like the Artia Son of a Gun that repurposed firearms paraphernalia. He was responsible for some of the most extreme Romagerome pieces back during the 
meteor, volcano, and titanic eras. And Archa is mostly an art house. So what we have here with the Purity Torbion is a Torbion developed elsewhere in a sapphire case designed by Artya. So it's an attractive thing, but it's a big thing. At 46 millimeters, I feel like this watch as a Torbion in that size is more in step with the tastes of the 2000s than the 2020s when, frankly, people are willing to pay for discretion. And since this is a piece unique, I'm not sure it should be competing with regular production watches. We also have the Space Revolution from Louis Monet, which features a spectacular spinning dial array of starships drawn from the world of Star Wars. And while it is a very cool piece, I'm not sure a Star Wars watch should win overall. If the primary gimmick is that it is a Star Wars watch. If this were a groundbreaking Torbion design, I would say game on. But I'm not sure that a watch that's focused on selling movie imagery should win the Torbion category. Audemars Piguet, Code 1159, self-winding flying Torbion chronograph. We've seen this movement before in other AP watches. And while I like it and I think it is very cool, we've already seen this exact movement in a Royal Oak Offshore that's nominated in a different category. I don't think there's a lot of innovation here since basically putting that movement in the Code 1159 case. And while the movement is new and exciting, I think it's more exciting in the Offshore. Gerard Perigo, Torbion with three flying bridges. It is an automatic winder by Micro Rotor with three Neobridge style modern flying bridges and a tourbillon regulator. The problem is Gerard Perigo has made so many versions of this watch that this model, which is part of their new collaboration with Aston Martin, feels like incrementalist design rather than the revolution that should win in the Torbion category. IWC comes out swinging with a movement we've seen before in a package we haven't. This is the IWC Big Pilots Watch Constant Force Torbion Edition IWC Racing. Of course, they have their association with Mercedes-AMG and Mercedes Formula One, and the AMG partnership is a long-running one. Within about three years, we're going to see the 20 anniversary of the link between AMG and IWC. So unlike, say, the shotgun marriage of Gerard Perigo and Aston Martin, this really feels like something that is well-established, long-running, sincere, and relevant to the customers of IWC. This is a rare auto co-branding, watch and wheels co-branding that's gone the distance. The watch is a 15-piece series, and where I see problems I see problems in the reuse of a movement that's found use in other IWC models over the years, and the 46.2 millimeter size of this 15-piece limited edition. Iteration is not something that deserves a lot of recognition. While the watch is cool and probably ideal if your name is Lewis Hamilton, I would have to say, all things considered, this is not a revolutionary watch, even though it's a watch that fits IWC well, and will be well appreciated by IWC collectors of virtually infinite means as it has a 220,000 Swiss franc price. Where I see the runaway contender in this category is the new Debatoon DB Kind of 2 Torbion. Now you can find my full length review of this watch on my channel Watchbox Reviews on YouTube if you wanna see what I'm talking about, but it is a double-sided Torbion watch that takes the floating variable geometry lugs that Debatoon launched in 2008 on the DB26 
perpetual calendar and made famous in 2010 on the DB28. So you've got the floating lugs, you've got a titanium case. It's under 43 millimeters at 42.8 millimeters, and it's under 10 millimeters thick, which is critical because if you look at the last two Aegidor winners, the overall winners at the GPHG, they were the ultra thin Audemars Piguet Royal Oak Perpetual Calendar and the ultra thin Piaget Alt Plano Ultimate Concept. So the fact that Debatoon has packed in a five day power reserve a tourbillon, and two functional dials with a rotating case means I think that the low profile of this DB kind of two tourbillon is part of the reason why I pick it as my winner in the category. Now, you're getting a lot. Debitune rarely does solid dials and center seconds, but a lot of folks don't like seeing their dial side barrel bridges and their open escapements. Some folks have likened it to a Star Wars Fleet Command badge. Well, you know, I have done the same. And if you're not a member of Starfleet and you're not a fan, or maybe you're just a Star Wars guy, well, if that's the case, then <laughs> there's another watch for you from Louis Monet, if you are the Star Wars type. But this watch hides its Delta-style bridge, its open escapement, and its tourbillon on a dial that you can disguise by flipping the watch to its solid dial with center seconds. Flip to the opposite side, and you have blazing, guilloche, black polish, fired blue titanium, and a tourbillon that moves in 30-second circuits and beats away at an El Primero like 36,000 vibrations per hour. And Debatoon tourbillon watches are guaranteed accurate within one second a day. So they walk the walk just as they talk the talk. For $215,000, this is more interesting to me than the tourbillon vertical from FP Journe, but I've been saying that for a long time. I think this is the best new tourbillon watch of the year. They will be making 10, but count on them making 10 a year rather than 10 forever. This is a special watch that seems as special in person as it does in studio photography. Let's talk about mechanical exception. Quite a few choices here, but let's run through them. We have the Mikieleta Svemir, which is a spectacular celestial complication. Notably, it's a clock. The Svemir includes one piece in a limited series that will sell for 200,000 Swiss francs. It has a 144-hour power reserve, which is six days, and it has hours, minutes, day, date, month, year, moon phases, power reserve, jumping hours, world time, perpetual calendar, equation of time, special escapement, and day-night indication, zodiac calendar, seasons, equinoxes, solstices, ecliptic, two astronomical models, geocentricism and heliocentricism. If you can remember, there was once a debate over whether the universe was centered on the sun or the earth. This is played out in real time with a clock that is enormous as it measures most of a meter in height. It's made of gold-plated brass by Miki Aleda, and it took 20 years to create this clock. It is deeply impressive. But even though clocks are gaining increasing recognition in the world of high horology, I would have trouble giving the Mechanical Exception Award to a clock competing against wristwatches. The rules of engagement are different. The micro-mechanics aren't necessarily present to the same degree. Different skills and techniques are required. The Jacob & Co. Opera Godfather Minute Repeater is, I'm sorry to say, god-awful. But it's, we thought the Star Wars watch was, wheel, was, was weird. This one literally has a picture 
of Marlon Brando on its dial with the puppeteer motif from the Godfather book and movie poster. Yes, it's impressive with a multi-axial tourbillon. Yes, it has a minute repeater, but it's 49 millimeters in diameter. They think they're going to sell 18 of these at 540,000 Swiss francs. I think the watch is ugly, pointless, and gimmicky, so I'm sorry I'm not a fan. It still takes skill to make, but I don't think it should win the category. Christophe Claret, featuring the image of Napoleon, painted in miniature, following the Battle of the Pyramids. Other than the questionable celebration of imperialism, what we have here is a really cool watch with the same odd historical tension as the revolutionary series of Zenith Christophe Coulomb watches from a few years ago, where they literally had people's revolutionaries from Latin American countries on the dials of six-figure watches. That was weird, just as this is weird. And at 47 millimeters, the watch is technically and artistically impressive, but it's just too big. It's a one-piece limited series, which means its relevance to the collector in general is going to be relatively low. This is not something that's going to be more than an object of fascination for one person. So I have my doubts about the theme of this watch with the miniature painting of the battle, but then it's also just too big, too expensive at 635,500 Swiss francs, and too uncommon to have broader relevance. And I do think within each of these categories, there has to be the question of broader relevance. What does it mean to watchmaking as a whole? What's its historical relevance to the industry? What does it mean to the collector, even the high-end collector? With one made, I don't think there's going to be a lot of relevance. But it's an impressive watch. Hours, minutes, tourbillon, automaton on the dial with the imagery of the men on horses. Minute repeater, it is a musical watch and a flying tourbillon. All of this is interesting. It has a Westminster chime, but I don't think it should win the mechanical exception category. Piaget is back with the Altplano Ultimate Automatic. This is a variation on a watch they've been making for a few years. So while it's 4.3 millimeters thick, 41 millimeters in diameter, and automatic winding, it's a variation on the Altplano Ultimate, which has been in service now for, I want to say, three years and counting. Finally, we have Ulysse Norden with the UFO, which is a bit like a weeble combined with a clock. It is enormous, round-bottomed, weighted at its base, so it can never fall over. It has 8,760 hours of power reserve, and then, of course, it features a stacked multi-barrel movement culminating in several different displays. So there are several different faces, so you can tell the time from any angle. It will be a 75-piece limited edition, and at under 40,000 Swiss francs, the price is reasonable for what you are getting. That said, I don't think that a clock should be winning this category, even one that literally has 365 days of power reserve. I think this category, mechanical exception, goes to Bernard Lederer with the central impulse chronometer. Now, he's been playing with this for a few years, but here's a 44-millimeter watch that actually makes sense because he needed the space to create the movement he did. This is a 25-piece limited series. You can get the dial in silver. You can get it in blue. It's engine-turned both ways with a unique pattern exclusive to Bernard Lederer. He was one of the earliest members of the AHCI, which is the Cool Kids Club of Watchmakers. And then this watch 
moves him away from his historical role as a supplier of engineering and movements to other brands. So this is Bernard Lederer acting under his own name, and here's what he's giving us. He's giving us two separate drivetrains, like the idea of the Breguet natural escapement driven by two separate barrels. This has been done by others, such as Derek Pratt, George Daniels, Charles Frodsham. But what Bernard Lederer has done is he's created the two separate drivetrains, each one of which has a direct impulse escapement, each one of which has its own separate remontoire de galette. Now, it has one balance. So this is not like a resonance chronometer. These two separate movements drive two separate escapements that drive one balance wheel. And there's a remontoire that is a 10-second remontoire that ensures for the full 38 hours of manual wind power reserve, this watch will maintain constant amplitude. The performance is said to be extraordinary. It is a very special watch that is as visually spectacular as it is technically audacious. And unlike most high horology watches, which merely speak of craftsmanship and a remote notion of precision, this is a COSC certified chronometer. So Letterer is putting his money where his mouth is and vice versa, sending this thing in for potential embarrassment if it doesn't pass with flying colors. That is bold. So not only is this a watch that represents mechanical exception, but it represents truth in advertising in a fashion we rarely see in the Swiss watch industry. And this is 137,850 Swiss francs, and I think it's worth every penny. It is available only in white gold. The movement is extraordinarily hand-finished, and it will not disappoint on that count either. A very cool watch. Now, we're going to save the chronograph, divers, artistic crafts, petite aiguille, Challenge and Egidor, along with the calendar and astronomy categories for our next podcast. For now, uh, we're going to close just by saying we'll continue our run through the rules, the nominees, and those that have won in the previous years. And just to get you fully up to speed... Last year, the mechanical exception winner was the Beauvais Recital 26 Brainstorm Chapter 2, which packed hours, minutes, seconds, moon phases, and power reserves, but in a fashion that was so gloriously artisanal and handcrafted, you could not help but smile. It also packed a flying tourbillon, amongst other complications. It was an absolute showstopper. This year, I think Bernard Lederer, with a watch that has only hours, minutes, and seconds, probably has the whole thing sewn up. So time out, Tim out. Thanks for logging on.